are politically speaking a nation and reflect upon the many who have laid down their lives for our national freedom. As a believer, understands how to use this as an evangelistic tool, a discipleship strategy to link it to the idea of one who laid down his life for our unity, where the sinless one died for asked later what took place. What was it that we know him as Ike said? Well, the general said, we're all set. We're totally prepared. And that he didn't think there would be too much of a problem, quote, unquote. And so the next day in the dark morning hours of June 6th, and other young men jumped out of their airplanes and they started the European invasion to take down the Nazi regime. What's fascinating about that invasion is that in essence, General Rommel of Germany all but wrote off the idea of fighting on that day. He was the brilliant desert warrior of the Nazis. But he looked at the skies and decided that he would take a two-day trip, a bit of a, a break, a vacation, if you will, intended to go see Hitler and ask for more men to beef up uh, the beach defense initiative. Other soldiers, officers at the same time, they also took time off to get together to practice war games. But not Eisenhower, he was not there to practice. 
another struggle. Because Eisenhower looked at the same skies and decided to go for it. So by one by one, they crossed the English Channel. And they dropped onto their foreign soil. One of those men standing with Eisenhower was the one that would give him weather updates and the report, the latest report that came at that time was that there would be a 16-hour window in the bad weather. Eisenhower, Eisenhower decided that he would enter Europe through that window, as did Strobel. And that moment serves as a moment in time, pivotal, epic, forcing us to think seriously about the ultimate issues of life. What I want to do with you this morning is to consider very carefully the battles of life, because there are life principles that you and I can extract from the battles of life in general, from this text in particular. What we're going to do is, with the battlefield of life in before us, we're going to examine each stanza carefully and draw life lessons found here, and the first stanza comes out of verse 1, down through verse 4, and we're going to pen it like this, that as you and I, as we, as we consider life's major, major battles, I want you to first of all reflect upon with me the training that God has provided for you, for me, as you see it in verse 1 through 4. Notice how this begins, blessed. And typical psalmist strategy, if you look furthermore at how this Psalm 144 ends, it ends with blessing. But as he blesses God in the beginning, he experiences God's blessings in the end. And you always want to connect your dots between the beginning and the end. Always start with the end in mind. In mind. And so now, here is David at this point, and his starting point his ending point have a connecting strategy. Blessed be, and but notice this now, he says, Lord, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. This is the covenantal relational name for his sovereign one. He knows that he is, that he is the sovereign personal God. In other words, because God is relational, he's not merely watching. watching over you. David understood that. God is so personal at this point, I want you to check out the use of the word my and how it continues to appear. You're not surprised that David, who has had to move in and out of the rough terrain, including the caves, the rocky landscape would begin with this opening expression, my rock. Who trains my hands for war and my fingers, my fingers for battle. Pause right there and already notice with me how many times David utilizes that word my to describe his relationship to God. And notice he says, my rock who trains. And so now we get our first 
uh, idea, this open stanza, the idea of the training that God has provided. He trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Now, how did God go about doing that in David's own experience? Well, let David explain it to you. Because back in the time in which he was having to stand before King Saul, and Saul and all the Israelite troops were threatened by this man by the name of Goliath, David found that there was a way for him to be able to argue the manner in which God had trained his fingers, God had trained his hands in terms of how he protected the flock of Jesse, his father, because someday he would be positioned to protect the flock God's flock, the people of Israel. Saul said, how can you possibly, in essence, go up against this man so trained in warfare as Goliath? And David's response? Well, in 1 Samuel 17, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when they came, when there came a lion or a bear, took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. He has defied the armies of the living God. At that point, at that point, what David was doing is he was witnessing Saul. Now, when you are going through extraordinary difficult times, are given extraordinary opportunities to be able to witness. Because while Saul is concerned with the dead troops, David is concerned with the living God. Saul saw nothing but obstacles. David and his witness saw nothing but opportunities. And while some might think that God is merely watching us, because he has started off with capital L-O-R-D, the covenantal relational name for God, he sees that God is watching over us as well. He's personal. And I thought about that, this whole matter of training my hands for war, my fingers for battle, as I came across this article by Mark Edegard, as he describes the time in which he was in flight seated next to him, near him, was Trish Schellenberger. And Schellenberger was looking at the hands of this soldier, Mark, Mark Edegard. And she would begin a ministry. But not to get ahead of ourselves at this point, we're told that Schellenberger was on her way from Dallas, Texas, to her home in Pennsylvania when she met Edegard. And one empty seat them, they talked the entirety of the flight. He had just completed, here's your word, training. He had just completed training for an upcoming deployment to Iraq at that point in time. She noticed that his hands were a mess. Sunburned on top, calloused on the palms. And lovingly, she reached into her bag and offered him a doing push-ups in the dirt, in the rocks. As a soldier, you don't get to say, ouch. You just do it, and you move on. 
But that simple act of kindness changed both of our lives in ways that we could not have possibly foreseen. Because von Schallenberger, with that image of his hands embedded in her mind, Schallenberger started a nonprofit organization called A Soldier's Hands, by which she would find ways where this nation would be watching over our on the battlefield of life, equipping them to keep on keeping on. Now, what we find here at this point is that what David is saying is that God has trained my hands. He's trained my fingers for battle. And if I look back on my experience with the bears and the lions as I was protecting Jesse's flock, in many ways he equipped me for the time in which I would be protecting and caring for God's flock, the people of Israel, which is now a life principle to consider. You don't waste your experiences in life. You invest your experiences in life. Even the most extreme disappointments in the past can be turned into incredible opportunities for high impact ministry in the future. Even where you let God down at one point will give you an opportunity to lift God's connection between his experiences with the lions and the bears overseeing Jesse's flock with Goliath taunting Israel's forces but David saying but this is God's flock and he went into the battle this is your way of entering into the battle of life no matter where you're at emotionally no matter how scarred you are in your own past hear this got you up to verse 2. I know I want you to continue speaking notice with me. He's mine. He's my steadfast love. My fortress. Now, fortress is meant to be moved. Comfort, the word fort is found in the word Verses 1 and 2 have to do with how God prepped, how God prepared David with the lions and the bears attacking, threatening Joseph's, excuse me, Jesse's flock, preparation for the day in which he will care for God's flock. He was prepared. Back to that scene, you might recall it now, the night before D-Day, there's Eisenhower, and he's prepping the troops. 
the same time, God was making connecting points because in the latter moments of Eisenhower's life, Billy Graham appeared. He was invited to visit Eisenhower and Walter Reed Hospital. Told he could only stay 30 minutes, and he went in. The general was wearing that usual large smile, big smile, even though he knew he didn't have long to live. And later, Billy Graham tells the rest of the story. When the 30 minutes were up, the president asked me to stay longer, and he said to me, Billy, I want you to tell me again how I can be sure my sins are forgiven and that I am going to heaven. I want to be prepared. So I took my scriptures and read to him. I pointed out that we don't go to heaven based upon our good works. You go to heaven totally, completely, exclusively on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Mr. President, you need to have put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. There, you can rest in the comfort. Jesus paid it all. And after prayer, Eisenhower said, stanza of preparation in verses 1 and 2 lead to furthermore the insight that comes out of verse 3 and 4 the protection oh lord he's back to it again isn't he you can almost hear him exhale on his battlefield experience oh lord capital l-o-i-d one more time now with that sense of significance which everybody wrestles so when you're leading people to save your faith in Jesus Christ, you're telling them about Jesus. You're inviting them out to save the sins and so on. What you want to do is to talk about the significance of God and how the significance of God is such that he viewed you significant enough that he would send Jesus to die for your sins. Oh, Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man? think of him. And then you read in verse 4, man is like breath, isn't he? That's what Arlington National Cemetery is a reminder of. Man is like a breath. His days are like a, like a passing shadow. And I thought about that. Flags in this Thursday of this week at National Arlington Cemetery. Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, has written a book about Arlington entitled Sacred Duty, the Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. And as he was touring, the preparation, furthermore, of writing a book on this subject, says, I came upon the gravesite of a Medal of Honor recipient. I paused, came to attention. Medal of Honor is the nation's highest decoration for battlefield valor. If 
by military custom all soldiers salute the Medal of Honor recipients, irrespective of their rank in life and in death. We had reminded our soldiers of this courtesy. Hundreds of grave sites would receive salutes that afternoon. I planted this flag, this hero's flag, and kept moving. It was Flag Doom Day, Thursday before Memorial Day. Soldiers who placed the flag belonged to the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, known as the Old Guard. Maybe you passed Thursday and not seen the news. It's gotten away from us by now. Storm, winds, awful rain coming down. But the Old Guard stanza deals with the training that God has provided and you're thinking about how to invest my experiences rather than waste my experiences life. The second stanza deals with the power that God has exhibited and now I want you to see how what once again David takes the richness of the Israelite experience and history and connected to the present all your heavens, but there you have it again. Oh Lord. He capitalizes. Come down. God of heaven, come down. Come down. You sing about David on radio. But then you move on from there. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Where's he getting that from? He knows the story of the Exodus, doesn't he? And so he knows the experience of Moses on Mount Sinai and the mountain smokes, smoke on the mountain. C.S. Lewis's wife, she wrote a commentary on the Ten Commandments with that as her title. Touch the mountains so that they smoke, flash forth with lightning, scatter them, send out your arrows and rout them, stretch out your hand from on high. boss brought him in for interrogation. The party boss ordered two men to strip Martins of his clothes. So Martins told them not to trouble themselves, he would undress, adding, quote, I don't die, I don't fear to die, I shall 
Jesus Christ, my hour has not come. Well, then you can see me not. Well, the biographer tells us this last remark drove the party off into a rage. I'll prove to you that your God will not deliver you out of my hand. There's the hand of Jesus. So he lifted his revolver to drop Martin from his tracks, but his finger froze on the trigger. Three times he tried to fire and failed. His face grew red. His body began to shake. He looked ready for a coronary episode. And at last he lowered the gun and asked the lesser officer what Martins was condemned for. And the officer responded, he's a Christian. Can't you see that God is fighting for him? And the boss ordered Martins to get out. So Martins recalled that and linked that then to the Communist Party's hands and fingers that could not pull the trigger to the way in which the Lord is described in Psalm 144 is spoken of as says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock and strength, my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Is it any wonder then at this point then that David is going on to say in verse 8, thirdly, I want you to notice the response that God has desired. What do you do with what you know? Well, here's, here's what David rebuts this time. Here's how he does. Well, verse 8, I will sing a new song to you, O Jacob. Not some old song. I'm going to make this contemporary. I'm going to connect my experience to are the dynamic God of the universe, no matter what I'm going through in the battle of my own life. And when I saw how he penned that, my mind went back to a, a very powerful commencement speech delivered by Admiral William McRaven at the University of Texas in 2014. It was spotted on YouTube. He wrote a book based upon this whole idea of 10 lessons First of the ten lessons that put a smile on the graduate's face. Number one, if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. And then add it. If you can't do the little things right at the start, you'll never do the big things right in the end. Ten lessons. He turned it into a book. 
lesson six. I won't go through them all, but lesson six, she said to the graduates, if you want to change the world as a Navy SEAL, sometimes you have to slide down the obstacle head first. And then thinking about his life experiences, number seven, if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. There are a lot of sharks in the world.
respond in verse 11, rescue me, deliver me from the hand of foreigners such as the Goliath of the Philistines. Because if the evil one had his way, David would have died on the battlefield and then the promise of God would be null and void because God had chosen to establish an eternal kingdom through the line of David. And if David had died prematurely, then Messiah would not have come into this world, which means that you and I would still be in our sin. Well, what God does is that he enters into the battlefield of life and he sovereignly works his hand in the military strategies that are seen in David's experience poetically, but also the way that God sovereignly works throughout all of history. And now David is connecting this because this was going to be read during the time of the exile when the Israelites had been removed from their land and they're wondering in essence, is God going to be involved in our everyday life experience? Rescue. our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing fruit. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. What he's now doing for you and for me is he's saying that in your battlefield experience of life, you reach a point when you have worked this through in your mind with the sovereign God who's not merely watching you but watching over you and if you know him personally and call him capital L-O-R-D because you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior well you're able to stand firm God is mighty and as a result you connect the blessings start with the end in mind. When you get to the end, you look back to the beginning. Blessed. Blessed are the people. We began with blessed is the Lord. Blessed, he ends with, are the people to whom such blessings fall. But then he adds this, and it is so rich because you're connecting your dots. You pull together verse 1 and verse 15. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And how did it begin? Blessed be the Lord. That's why a general on the night before Gilgal would be able to say, we're prepared, we're ready. And then a Billy Graham would enter his room in the closing moments of his life, pray with him. And at the end of the prayer, the president would say, 